global business news 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app, and on your radio. This is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow, and this update is brought to you by, well, we'll have more on that in just a moment, but Bayer is offering $62 billion to buy Monsanto, deepening investor concern that it's stretching its finances to become the world's biggest seller of seeds and farm chemicals. Monsanto shares Bayer up almost 8% this morning. Aries Capital, the publicly traded lender managed by alternative investment firm Aries Management, will acquire American Capital in a deal valued at $3.4 billion. And Tribune Publishing, infused with a 70 $2.5 million investment from Nant Capital rejected Gannett's latest takeover offer, escalating the battle between newspaper publishers. Futures little changed. S&P E-Mini Futures down a point. Dow E-Mini Futures down three. And NASDAQ E-Mini Futures up three and a half. The DAX in Germany is down seven-tenths percent. Ten-year Treasury little change. Yield 1.83 percent. Yield on the two-year, 0.89 percent. NYMEX crude oil down 1.7 percent or 82 cents to 47.58 a barrel. COMEX Gold is down half percent or five dollars ninety cents at twelve forty seven an ounce. The euro a dollar twelve oh two, the yen one oh nine point four nine. That's a Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Mike. Karen, uh, thanks so much. Bloomberg surveillance this morning brought to you by BNY Mellon. They proudly introduce Asset Strategy View, a game changer for asset managers and asset owners. Visit BNYMellon.com to learn more about asset strategy view. BNY Mellon dot com asset strategy view bnymelon.com has that for you we thank the people of bny melon worldwide and in boston for their uh, support of what uh, we do michael darda always gets our attention with mkm um partners we'll come to him in a moment but first it is 849 on wall street the following is from Bloomberg View. Opinions and commentary from Bloomberg columnists. I'm Ramesh Panur, a columnist for Bloomberg View. Interest rates are on the way up. In the minutes from the Fed's latest meeting, most participants said that a rate hike in June would likely be appropriate if the economy continues to improve. Presidents of two of the regional Feds said that two more rate increases could follow later this year. These rate hikes lack a convincing rationale. As the minutes acknowledge, inflation is currently below the Fed's 2% target, and the Fed does not think it will be hit before it tightens monetary policy. The Cleveland Fed estimates that the market expects an average inflation rate of 1.75% over the next 10 years. Perhaps then the Fed views 2% inflation not as a target, but as a ceiling. An inflation ceiling has drawbacks, however. It makes the long-run price level less predictable, and it ensures that recoveries from future recessions will be weak. The Fed is also influenced by the view that today's low interest rates are abnormal and need to change, which is awfully close to saying that higher interest rates are an end in themselves. That dubious assumption seems like the only way to make sense of the Fed's current plan. I'm Ramesh Panuru. For more view, please go to BloombergView.com or view Go on the Bloomberg Terminal. This has been Bloomberg View. And Bloomberg View commentary can be heard hourly weekdays on Bloomberg Radio. Michael Darter with us, MKM Partners. Michael, I am reading every word and every footnote of Stanley Fisher's wonderful speech uh, in support of Michael Woodford at Columbia where he goes back and talks about the history of Darda, which is Newt Vixel, and folding it into Maynard Keynes and onto Paul Samuelson, onto Patinkin, the giant of 1960s economics, who uh, 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 Vice Chairman Fisher studied with at MIT, and then onto the present work of Michael Woodford. Does any of this matter? Is our theory so broken now 
is we search for economic growth, that we have a central bank running theory lists? Well, Tom, thanks for having me on. I think what's broken is this previous assumed relationship between the unemployment rate or more broadly labor market slack and inflation. The Fed really puts a lot of stock in this and their assumption in terms of moving forward with additional monetary tightening is that the unemployment rate now down at about 5%, so pretty close to a cycle low, <clears throat> will in and of itself um, help the Fed get back up to that 2% inflation target over time. And in fact, they're worried about overshooting it, which is the whole reason for, you know, now recently guiding the markets towards a, you know, a, a summer additional rate rise. But the bond market is not, um, you know, is not impressed. And in fact, if you look at the tips inflation break-even market, still miles below what would be consistent with the Fed achieving its target over time. So some of these relationships don't look like they're holding up, and I think that puts us in a bit of a box. The uh, the, the tips uh, rates, as Jim Bullard uh, points out today in his comment, isn't a lot of people look at that and say, well, they're miles below the Fed, but it isn't comparable because the Fed looks at PCE and tips are based on CPI. Exactly. No, that's a great point, uh, Mike. And it's even worse because <laughs> the CPI data runs about 50 basis points above the PCE data. Tips are priced off of the CPI. So, you know, if those, if those tips inflation break-even spreads are south of 2%, um, you know, it's even, it's even worse than, you know, than, than would be suggested at first blush. So, you know, I'm afraid the, the Fed is on the run wrong track here and the assumption that the Phillips curve relationships are going to hold up and the Fed can just continue to you know, move gradually and everything will be okay, I think is not likely to be the case. I think we're on a course now where the Fed is almost going to ensure a return to the zero lower bound in the next downturn. And that's not a good place to be. Well, that's one of the reasons they would argue it's important to get off the zero bound. In order well, to... that's the, that's, that's, an argument that's being made, but I think there's a key flaw in it, which is that the earlier they start, especially if it's premature and, you know, they're going to dampen nominal growth and inflation, uh, that actually increases the probability that they won't get very far along. If they want room to raise rates, they really need to make sure that the equilibrium interest rate, where Tom started the idea of the ideas of new fixed cell is up there high enough relative to where the Fed is that they can raise rates without threatening the business cycle. But that's really not the, you know, that's that's not the signal we're getting out of tips and the yield curve. Even just looking at nominal GDP growth, we're, we're running 3.2% year to year. That's the wow. low end of the six-year range. You know, I guess the Fed's feeling is that that's temporary, but I wouldn't be so sure. Yeah, but uh, is it going to, I mean, a 25 basis point move, is that going to threaten the, the, the economic cycle, the business cycle? Well, a lot of people thought that, you know, that wouldn't and couldn't be the case going into the December rate rise. And, you know, we had a fair uh, bit of market panic. Uh, and, in fact, I would argue that the Fed tightening really began with the tapering of asset purchases and the end of quantitative easing. At least that's what financial markets told us, credit markets and break-even markets, the long end of the curve, the steepness of the curve. And then the December rate rise, you know, went ahead, even with a lot of credit market stress, fairly unusual for the Fed to be lifting short rates with the kind of stress in credit markets that we saw late last year. And markets, you know, basically went into a, you know, a panic for the next two months until the Fed backed away. Now the recent justification for restarting 
the rate rises is that market volatility is settled oh. down. The Fed doesn't seem to acknowledge that that is in large measure the result of them backing away. So, Right. How much, and, and, and Michael, this goes to your study of the word chronic, how much length of time of subpar nominal GDP do we need to have before we almost revert to a pre-Volker Fed looking somewhat at nominal GDP? I mean, chronic or the inertial force of low nominal GDP at some point has to get somebody's attention, right? Yeah, and there are two problems here. <clears throat> you know, nominal GDP is, is weak in, in part because the Fed has been undershooting its 2% inflation goal, but it's also been weak due to real forces that are outside of the Fed's control. If you look at the average growth rate of non-farm productivity over the last six years, it's been exceptionally slow, just a tad above 0.5% per annum in working-age populations growing at about the same rate. So if growth potential is only running around 1%, even if the Fed is hitting its inflation target, that gets us to about 3% nominal GDP growth. In, in other words, at least the best-case scenario, the way I see it, unless there's a pickup in productivity growth, is for about 3% nominal GDP growth to persist. That's not very good, um, but it's in part due to a productivity and, and labor force slow down, yeah. and it's in part due to the Fed undershooting its inflation objective. We can blame the Fed for the second part, but not for the first. Well, it's the, uh, is, um, the current interest rate, an appropriate interest rate for the growth rate of the economy that we have now and the unemployment rate that we have now? Uh, you know, I think so. I mean, we know that because Look, if the Fed were miles and miles below a quote-unquote normal rate, I think what ends up happening is people look at, you know, rates at 50 basis points. That's where the IOER rate is, which is the Fed's primary tool now um, for tightening policy. And they say, well, that's very odd historically. But the reality is 3% nominal GDP growth is also odd historically. The inflation rates we are seeing, you know, below 2%, very low historically, and importantly, forward-looking financial markets are telling us that the Fed is likely to undershoot, not overshoot, even with these low rates. So if you go back you know, a week or so, even before the Fed started to try to guide the markets to a summer rate rise, mm -hmm. the Fed funds futures markets were priced for the next hike you know, in December. And even then, the TIPS markets were you know, well below what would be consistent right. with the Fed's target. So, you know, so, we, so we know, based on you know, what's happening in the economy and where these inflation expectations measures are that, no, this low, quote, right. short rate is not way out of whack. Well, let's come back. Michael Darter with us, one of our most popular guests, uh, very suspect there of Fed policy. We have another hour of Bloomberg surveillance. We have another uh, moment with Michael Darter. Stay with us. Good morning. is Bloomberg Surveillance. I think most experts would agree that the world needs more expansionary fiscal policy. But I think the FOMC is trying to tell us, hey guys, there is actually a good case to be made for the economy reaching full capacity and therefore for us hitting our dual mandate. Policymakers don't like changing policy without preparing markets. The fact that they haven't been preparing markets for a rate hike suggests that there will not be one in June. Bloomberg Surveillance, your link to the world of economics, finance, and investment on 
Bloomberg Radio. Good morning, everyone. Bloomberg Surveillance, Michael McKee and Tom Keenan moments. We continue our conversation with Michael Darda, MKM Partners, very critical of Fed policy in the toolbox that the Fed has uh, moving forward. Part of that toolbox is looking at the markets, looking at equities, bonds, commodities. Commodities challenge today, iron ore. Very weak oil down 78 cents on Brent 47.95. Gold now down $6. It was better earlier. 12.46 the ounce, about $20 away from resistance that bears watching this morning. As does foreign exchange, the Forex brief brought to you by Interactive Brokers, winner of FX Week's 2015 award for the best retail Forex trading platform. Visit IB at IBKR.com slash Forex yen 109.49. Stronger yen, a bit of a surprise with dollar stronger. The blended dollar, 9540, uh, 95.44, I should say. Why is that? Obviously stronger yen, stronger dollar. Must be weak euro through 112, 111.95. Sterling, 144.58. Commodity currencies weaker. Good morning, Canada, 131.72 weaker. Looney as well. David Wilson diluted this morning. He was accretive on Friday. I, it's an all-cash deal. Come on, David. You've been doing this for 30 years. I get the PR. It's an all-cash deal. But it's assumed they're going to go get a cash call from the current shareholders, which means it's dilutive Monday. Am I right? You're telling the story, Tom, and uh, I presume it's all about Monsanto and Bayer, or if you like, Bayer. Bayer, Bayer. Indeed. Well, uh, B- Bayer's the buyer. Monsanto's shares are up 8.5% in early trading. That's the key. Yeah, it is. Yes, and, but only they're not up to the, share, the the offer price, which is what's fascinating about this. $122 a share. That's what uh, Bear's offering. We know that now. We knew there was an offer last week, but we didn't know the terms. So that detail's out front. Monsanto at the moment at 109.60, so it's a long way from that $122 price. Uh, Monsanto at the moment reviewing the terms of that offer, so uh, we don't know yet whether they're going to accept. And there's a few more developments on the you takeover okay? front. Gotta, I'm gotta fine. Be, you're dazzled. It's been that kind of morning already. You know, you've got the Wall Street Journal reporting that Anthem and Cigna are bickering with each other as they seek approval for their merger. Their top officials are accusing each other of violating the merger agreement, fumbling submissions to regulators. You put that all together, and Cigna shares are down 2.5% in early trading. And then you look at Viacom, which is up 2.5% in the wake of uh, Chairman Sumner Redstone's decision to uh, get rid of uh, Viacom CEO Philippe Dauman and Director George Abrams from the trust that controls the company. So definitely some uh, moves there. You got gold stocks higher, uh, along with the price of the precious metal in New York trading. Or I should say lower, actually. Uh, Newmont Mining, Barrick Gold among the stocks are down. We were talking maybe 2% declines there. Fiat Chrysler is down 4%. German regulators found the automaker used illegal software to cheat on emissions tests, according to the newspaper Bild am Sonntag, or if you prefer, Bild on Sunday. Fiat Chrysler said all its vehicles comply with emissions rules. Back to the deal front. American Capital at 3.5%. Yeah. The business development company accepted a takeover offer from Ares Capital that's valued at $3.4 billion in cash and stock. And the deal excludes American Capital Mortgage Management, which is being sold separately to American Capital Agency for uh, $562 million. 
So you definitely have some deals going on there. Tribune Publishing down 8%. The owner of the Chicago Tribune and Los Angeles Times rejected Gannett's latest takeover proposal, valued at $864 million. Tribune also agreed to sell a 12.9% stake to a billionaire drug executive, Patrick Soon-Shung, at the $15 a share price of Gannett's offer. David Wilson, thank you for a dilutive report this morning. He'll be accretive uh, tomorrow. Michael Darter with us. Is, is we look at the search for nominal GDP and mergers. I mean, if you can't grow, buy somebody. I mean, that's one of the effects, Michael Darda, of weaker nominal GDP. What does weaker nominal GDP mean for our listeners? What does it mean for consumption? What does it mean for wage growth? Well, it means that we're in an overall, you know, slower growth environment and nominal GDP is effectively equivalent to top line growth for companies. So if we're in the very low single digits, <clears throat> then investors really shouldn't be expecting profits to be growing at, you know, high single digits or certainly double digits, especially now with the labor market tightening up some. So wage growth is still quite low. It'll likely stay low, but the fact that it's it's accelerating moderately relative, relative to a decelerating nominal growth rate, meaning if top-line growth is weakening, and it has over the last year and a half, and nominal wage rates, which are more sticky, you know, are steady to rising slowly, then <clears throat> that's going to crimp corporate profit margin, margins. And, in fact, these GDP-based profits, the so-called NIPA profits, which cover all U.S. corporations, uh, peaked relative to the economy back in 2012. Only two business cycles in history lasted this long after such an occurrence. So I'm afraid we're in a late cycle environment. So my message for investors would you know, mm. be to be diversified and, and somewhat cautious here. Buy a mattress? Well, not necessarily buy a mattress, but to, you know, if you're investing in index funds, just, you know, match the stock exposure with some bonds and cash. And then you can sleep at night. Uh, when you talk about um, top line shrinking, and and that is happening, you have to ask why. Uh, and I mean, you can either grow the top line by investing, and companies aren't doing that, or you can uh, have it appear in the bottom line by buying back stock or by cutting expenses. Uh, if we live in this zero-rate world and the Fed should not be raising rates, then how do you ever get out of that? Well, I mean, I think there are two steps. One, you know, would be if the Fed, you know, the Fed needs a, a better target, a more explicit target, it would be better for them to commit to level targeting if we're going to target inflation to make up for undershoots and, and overshoots. Even better would be something like nominal GDP targeting. But even that, if it's optimal, and that's my view and the view of the market monetarists, at this point in the business cycle is not going to create miracles if we have very weak productivity growth. And that's the other end of this. We're not exactly sure why productivity slowed. It's, I think it's, you know, it's more obvious why the demographic issues are there in terms of working age population growth being slower. We know that that's likely to, to persist. On the productivity side, you know, it's a more open question, but I think that we know enough about economic history to understand that moving forward with things like trade protectionism, a massive multi-million person shock to the labor force, you know, federally imposed wage shocks, these are the kinds of things that are not going to help productivity. Yeah. So unfortunately, the angst out there is giving way to well, you know, certain populist proposals on the left and the right that are likely to only do damage. Within the populist proposals is eight years, and Michael, you've been wonderful on this, 
of a need to clear markets. And we all give the U.S. high score for clearing banking versus Europe, et cetera, et cetera. But the bottom line is, on a Hayekian basis, we haven't cleared markets. We're just postponing, postponing, hoping for a workout. Are we heading towards a disequilibrium or instability because we just keep postponing clearing our various and sundry balance sheets? Well, I mean, the, you know, the critical uh, theme here is that you can't expect markets to clear if you have a big you know, monetary disruption where nominal GDP crashes, and that was really an 08-09 story. So we have seen labor markets recovering as nominal growth has, you know, has, has started to, you know, has been recovering. Now it's slowing, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, beyond that, Tom, I would say if we take a look back at the 30s, economist Scott Sumner has written a book on this, The Midas Paradox, so I'll give him a bit of a plug here, but it's fascinating. Sumner goes back to that period and looks, it basically disentangles the monetary shocks and some of the real shocks on wages. And, and essentially the conclusion is, um, absolutely do not try to artificially force wages higher, especially if you're in an environment where monetary policy is tightening, because what happens is profits and investment collapse. Yeah, you get a profit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, and that seems to be where we're heading with some of these proposals. You've got the Fed tightening now, so nominal growth is is slowing, and it wasn't growing that fast a year and a half ago anyway, and now we're, you know, we yeah. have trade protectionism and, and, you know, federal minimum wages and, and all kinds of stuff out there that would just damage right. economic efficiency and, and hurt profits well, and corporate investment. We don't see enough. Michael Darda, I look forward to speaking to you again soon. He's with MKM Advisors. Uh, uh, Michael McKee, uh, Josh Brown, always smart, writes a brilliant tweet this morning. This weekend's Barons had Byron Wien on the cover in a feature on Laszlo Barini. They really need to stop pandering to millennials. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's very good. Josh Brown, if you're listening, and uh, Laszlo and Byron, uh, we say good morning to you. I'm sure that Byron Wien and Laszlo were smart in Barons this morning. Future's negative two. Time now to check in with Michael Barr and get the latest world and national headlines. Mike, Tom, thank you very much. President Obama says the death of Taliban leader Mullah Mohammed Akhtar Mansour marks an important milestone in the effort to bring peace to Afghanistan. Mansour was killed when a U.S. drone fired on his vehicle in southwest Pakistan. President Obama says the U.S. is lifting a ban on lethal arms sales to Vietnam. The president speaking in Hanoi today says this change will ensure that Vietnam has access to the equipment that it needs to defend itself. We are here to shape a different future. That's what U.N. Secretary General Ban Ki-moon said today when he opened the first World Humanitarian Summit in Istanbul. The U.N. is hoping that the two-day meeting will help countries better tackle the world's humanitarian crisis. An estimated 125 million people worldwide require humanitarian assistance. Global News, 24 hours a day, powered by our 2,400 journalists, more than 150 news bureaus around the world. I'm Michael Barr. Mike, Tom? Michael, thanks so much. Renminbi, the yuan, the Chinese yuan, 6.56, grinding ever weaker on dollar renminbi. Stay with us. Bloomberg Surveillance. Market Drivers brought to you by Prestige Land Rover Paramus. Visit Prestige Land Rover Paramus and test drive the 2016 Range Rover Evoque SE to experience true adventure. Release offers. Visit PrestigeLandRover.com today.